Chapter 10 of the Story of Garfield by William G. Rutherford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. The Story of Garfield by William G. Rutherford. Chapter 10 The Rope That Saved Him. The Driver of a Canal Boat Mule Team. Defense of the Eight. James Speaks Out Plainly. A Narrow Escape. A Severe Illness. The turning point in James's life. When Mrs. Garfield found that James had become unsettled and restless, she decided to give way and allow him to obtain some experience of a seafaring life. Finding that he had no definite plan in his mind, she proposed that he should try a voyage on Lake Erie. This suggestion fell in with his wishes, and once more, taking his bundle in his hand, he set out to seek his fortune. On foot he journeyed to Cleveland, a distance of seventeen miles, and went on board the first vessel he saw. There he inquired for the captain of the schooner, whom he expected to be a gentleman. To his disgust, the man who appeared was a drunken, swearing fellow, who, with a volley of oaths, threatened to throw him into the dock if he did not at once leave the vessel. No pleasant dream was ever more rudely dispelled than were James Garfield's bright visions of the charm of a seafaring life. No such wretch as the captain he had just met with had been described in any of the books he had read, and he began to think that there must be a mistake somewhere. At any rate, he had no present intention of giving up the idea of being a sailor. While walking along the side of the docks, he met his cousin, Amos Fletcher, who was the captain of a canal boat, and to whom he related his recent experience. Amos offered him the post of driver, and James engaged to go with his cousin to Pittsburgh in that capacity. His work was to take turns with another driver, and for a certain number of hours, when his turn came, to drive the two miles which drew the boat along the canal. The boatmen were profane, coarse, vulgar whiskey drinkers who regarded rum and tobacco as among the chief necessaries of life. A greater contrast there could not have been than that which existed between James and the men among whom his lot was cast. The work required some experience, and the very first day the new driver and his mules were thrown into the canal while trying to pass another boat. At once, the other men ran to his assistance, and when James and his mules were placed safely on the towing path, he had to stand a considerable amount of good-humored chafing. Ames had been engaged in teaching before he became the captain of a canal boat, and when he found how much James knew, he spoke very seriously to him about his future prospects. His cousin told him that with a little more education he would be well qualified to take charge of a school and strongly advised him to adopt this course. James now remembered that not only his mother and sister, but everyone to whom he had spoken had told him he was throwing himself away and seeking to be a sailor, and therefore the words of his cousin had considerable influence over him. He began to think that he had been guilty of acting foolishly, and to waver in his purpose. One day the boat came to a lock the same time as another boat, and the crews of the two vessels were about to fight for the first turn, when James spoke out boldly and declared that the right belonged to the other boat and that it should precede them. The captain was so struck with his cousin's manly defense of the right that he ordered his men to give way. A fight was prevented, and fair play was given to the first comers. 
Some of the men in his own crew called him a coward, but that had no effect on James. He had long ago settled in his own mind that the greatest coward was the man who did not dare to do right. Not long afterwards, James offended one of the men who at once set upon him. To save himself, James knocked the man down. All the men at once called upon James to pitch into him while he was on the ground. But James replied that he never struck a man when he was down. This was a new idea to the men, who had called him a coward because he would not fight for that which did not belong to him. Ever afterwards, they regarded him with respect. Even they, rough and brutal as they were, could appreciate the generous spirit which prompted such noble actions. One of the boatmen, named Harry Brown, was a good-hearted fellow who took a great fancy to James. This man was, however, so very fond of drink that he was always getting into trouble. James tried to persuade Harry to give up drinking, and the man listened willingly to the kind advice which he found so hard to follow. When speaking of James to one of the crew, Harry said, Jim is a great fellow. I should like to see what sort of a man he will make. The way he rakes me down on whiskey, tobacco, and swearing is a caution, and he does not say a word that is not true. I like him, though. I always like a man to show his colors. All through life it was the same. No matter where he was or in what circumstances he was placed, James Garfield always showed his colors, and he was never afraid to nail them to the mast. Therefore, the ignorant, drunken crew not only respected the lad who so boldly reproved them, but boasted of the companionship of one so unlike themselves. Said the steersman to the bowman of another boat, We have a fellow in our crew who never drinks, smokes, chews, swears, nor fights. But he's a jolly good fellow, strong as a lion, could lick any of us if he has a mind to, and a first-rate worker. I never saw such a boy. Both captain and crew agreed that James was a peacemaker, and that he carried out his purpose without making enemies. Thorough and prompt in everything, and unwilling to be a party to any wrongdoing, he was regarded as a model worthy of imitation by all who knew him. During the first few months that he was on the canal boat, James fell into the water fourteen times. The last time nearly cost him his life. It was a dark and rainy night, and no one saw him jerked into the water. The boat swept on, and just as he began to despair of receiving any aid, his hand caught a rope in the darkness, and he drew himself into a place of safety. He found that the rope that had served his purpose had held fast by catching in a crevice on the edge of the deck. That was all that had come between him and death. Never had James had such serious thoughts in his mind as then, when he saw the rope and how it had saved him. At once he thought of his praying mother, and the overruling providence in which she so firmly believed, and at that moment he made up his mind to leave the canal boat and return to his home. A few weeks afterwards, James was attacked by ague, and he decided to go at once. It was eleven o'clock at night when he reached the house. Looking through the window, he saw his mother by the light of the fire. She was on her knees. Listening for a moment, he heard the words that fell from her lips. She was praying for him. A moment later, mother and son, once more reunited, were sobbing in each other's arms. Then James told his mother all about his life on the canal and how God had preserved him almost by a miracle from drowning. After he went to bed, and next day was found to be so ill that he was laid up for several weeks. 
During that period, Mrs. Garfield often spoke to James about his future, and he agreed with his mother that if God saved his life on that night, he must have saved him for something. Then she brought her son under the influence of the teacher of their school, who was preparing to be a minister, and he soon showed James that the difference between a scholar and a sailor is the difference between somebody and nobody. James decided to continue his education. That was the turning point in his life. His mother knew that, having once said, I will go to school, he would keep his word, and from that time she was satisfied. End of chapter 10 Recording by William Tomko